would please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9 this morning, verses 20 to 31. been following the life of Saul. We've seen his conversion in the book of Acts. Really with Paul's or Saul's conversion, it takes a kind of a turn to where certainly there's the focus. The focus remains on Christ. The focus remains on church. The focus remains on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The focus remains on the apostles as well, but the book of Acts will focus much more now on Saul, or better known as the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. or picking up right actually in the very last part of verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we... We need your word. We need the spiritual sustenance that comes from your word. So, Lord, would you feed us this morning? Lord, it cannot come from me. I have nothing to give but what your word teaches. So, would you help me to communicate this word in a way that makes sense, in a way that is understood? And Lord, help us to receive your word spiritually, to receive it through your spirit, and that you may cause your word to bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name, 
Amen. So let me quickly tell you how I'm going to actually go about preaching this passage. We're actually going to begin with the end, considering what's going on with the church, really focusing on verse 31 and what's happening there. How is the church growing and being multiplied? And then working sort of our way back up and considering Saul and the things that are sort of happening in his life. And then concluding with some applicational thoughts. When it comes to any business or company or organization, growth matters. And they're always thinking about how can we grow? How can we generate more revenue? How can we put this product into more hands? And that question is important because the company needs to grow. And the question of growth also translates into the life of the church as well. Right? Growth is important, now certainly for very different reasons. But it's the question of growth that sometimes leads to some techniques that are helpful, some not always so helpful. But it all begins with, or what matters is, what's the ground for those techniques? A simple Google search for church growth strategies produces some particular techniques for church growth, such as, for example, having an active social media presence, uh, putting together an engaging hybrid worship service, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. It is making sure that your, your sermons are available to all people everywhere. It is making sure that it is a warm and inviting community and all these things. And so some of these things are good. Some of these things are kind of questionable. Some of these things I'm not really sure about. And I'm not intending to go through each list of these techniques and sort of poo-poo them or say this one's good, this one's right, this is why this, is why this one's not right, and this one's good. It's not my intent. The reason why I kind of bring this up is because techniques oftentimes do matter, but what matters most is sort of what's, what's animating the technique. What's the technique for? What is the program for? What is the strategy for? Because if we're not careful in the life of the church, if we are giving too much to techniques, then the focus becomes much more on numbers, right, and that's the danger. Right? We don't want to professionalize the ministry. We don't want to professionalize the kingdom of God to where it's numbers that matter most. Because if techniques or strategies or programs are driven more by numbers, then most likely it'll lead to a compromising of truth, a compromising of the gospel, a loss of conviction. And when you compromise the gospel, then is it really a gospel at all? But not all techniques or programs, even by many are, that are, are sort of promoted and proclaimed by wonderful ministries and church leaders out there, have a bad starting place or ground But it is important to consider where we'd be getting from. What is the ground? What is driving us to where we're going? Because truth does matter. Not just truth, but biblical truth, accurate truth, the right truth. 
So take for instance, Christ Jesus died for the broken. Is that true? I'd say it is. It is true. Jesus did die for the broken, but Jesus didn't just die for the broken. Jesus also died for those who are doing pretty well. Jesus died for those who are depressed and those who are generally happy. Jesus died for those who are rich and those, Jesus died for those who are poor. Jesus died for those who are drug addicted and those for those who are not drug addicted. Jesus died for those whose lives are a mess and for those whose life are pretty stable and restful. And so it's not false, but it's not entirely true either. Because when we say that Jesus died for the broken and that becomes our gospel and that becomes our truth that sort of animates and drives everything we do, essentially what we could be communicating is that Jesus, you should believe in Jesus because Jesus becomes a kind of repairman. Jesus, come take your hammer and fix the brokenness in my life. Where in the gospel, in the scriptures, believing in the gospel doesn't guarantee that the brokenness in your life will be restored. If you come into the gospel and believe in the gospel, yes, your broken relationship with God is restored through Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mean that automatically your horizontal relationships are all restored, especially if you've made some terrible mistakes that have severed those relationships in your life. And so these things matter because truth drives action. The apostles, when they preached the gospel, they preached objective facts that Jesus Christ died for sinners. First John, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. They preach and they teach and they proclaim objective facts and they interpret those facts to help people to understand what it means and then they apply that truth. truth, interpretation, application. Facts, interpretation, application. Truth matters. And when it comes to the question of church growth, a question we always ought to ask ourselves with anything is, does the Bible have anything to say? Does the Bible say anything about church growth? Because the church growth does matter. But truth matters more, and truth determines how you view church growth. Yes, we want to grow, but we want to grow in a way that brings more people into the kingdom of heaven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we want the sanctuary to be filled because we want to see more people worshiping our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is worthy to be praised among all people and among all tongues and amongst all nations. Growth certainly does matter because we want to grow from the inside out. We want to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to grow in our love for the body of Christ. We want to grow in our love for those who are lost. So then, as we consider the book of Acts, the church was not after a particular form of techniques or a set of techniques, but first and foremost, they were giving to living by truth. 
they were animated by the very truth, by the very reality that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And then that means something. Right? When you believe that, that affects how you live. It affects everything that you do. And interestingly, I do think that the scriptures, and particularly the book of Acts, we've been going through the book of Acts, do have some things to tell us or teach us about church growth. And what it does teach us seems so simple that you kind of might question, like, does it really work? Because we're after always, as people, we're always after the new and the shiny, the things that, are, that are, haven't been tested before, the things that are different, set formulas. Well, if you do it this way and this way and this way, then it must work. But what we're after is, how can we place ourselves in the best position possible to be blessed by God? so that the church may continue to grow. Acts 2.42, we see what happens after there was a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many people came to believe in that gospel. Acts 2.42, and these believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." From the very beginning of the book of Acts, we see that the church herself was very countercultural, and you continue to see that throughout the book of Acts, and as you continue to study the New Testament, the church is very different than anything else that you see in the rest of the world, because the gospel produces something that nothing else can produce. And we see that these early believers, they devoted themselves to at least four things. The teaching, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, coming together, doing life with other believers. They devoted themselves to the sacraments, taking communion together, a sign of genuine faith and a sign and a way to know who's in and who's out. And they devoted themselves to prayer. And the church, being devoted to these things, had this kind of magnetizing effect people on the outside could not help but notice that there was something different and they were attracted by it. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So if we're looking for a particular church growth strategy, there's one. There's a devotion. When the people of God, each individual person is devoting or she is devoting herself to the teaching of the church, to prayer, to fellowship, coming together and taking communion. And how about this one? Stephen's martyrdom. Stephen proclaiming the gospel, saying some harsh words to his hearers, and then which result in his being killed on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the church then scatters and goes to different places. And what do they do? They continue to preach the gospel. And so what's there to learn about Stephen's example? What's there to learn is that 
that we have to be willing to sort of walk into things or conversations that are uncomfortable or be willing to turn the conversation to sort of an uncomfortable conversation that comes from sharing Christ. Right, but if we're not willing to sort of embrace the awkward, we're not willing to get a little uncomfortable. Because let's face it, this is the worst that could have happened, right? For Stephen to be martyred. Most likely that's not going to happen to you. <laughs> the worst that you and I could expect in having a conversation about Jesus with someone who doesn't believe is that the conversation gets awkward. But if we're not willing to sort of be awkward or be in an uncomfortable, uncomfortable position, then how can we expect for the Lord to grow his, his church? And then related to this is Philip's evangelism when Philip, amongst the many others who were scattered after Stephen's martyrdom, went and proclaimed the gospel in, in the Samaritan town, and then he was led to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then from there, he was brought elsewhere. And what did he do each and every time? He continued to proclaim the gospel. It is an embracing of the mission of the church to go and make disciples of all nations. It is when we embrace this calling, that this is our primary calling, that we are about the mission of Christ Jesus to spread the fame of his name across the world and that he allows us, he permits us, in fact, he even commands us to be a part of that great mission of expanding his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so not what you would expect, perhaps, when it comes to church growth strategies, but these are the things that God uses in order to bring his gospel and spread that gospel and bring more people into the gospel. Now in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. So we see that the church was continuing to grow and was built up and, was, and even multiplied. Not like a business or organization that perhaps might construct bigger buildings or look for a bigger building or might build skyscrapers. But this is more like a tree that continues to grow, spread out its branches, producing more fruit, casting shade. This is what it's compared to in Matthew 13. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, known as the humble beginnings of the gospel. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. As the church continued to grow, it says that she grew in wisdom. That is the fear of the Lord. The wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So they walked in the fear of the Lord. 
and they grew in piety. John, Cal John Calvin sums it up. When he describes piety, he says that it designates the right attitude of man toward God, which includes true knowledge, heartfelt worship, saving faith, filial fear, prayerful submission, and reverential love. So here's a church walking in the fear of the Lord, walking in His ways. They're growing in this. They're exemplifying this. And this is their wisdom, according to Proverbs. And it also says that it, they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That there's a particular comfort that comes from knowing that you are walking in a way that pleases the Lord. Like a child is well pleased and finds a comfort when he or she knows that they have their father's love and encouragement. So also the comfort of the saints is comes from knowing that they are walking in a way that pleases God, and that is walking in the fear of the Lord. That is a comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit. It says that the church multiplied. It continued to grow. As you saw somewhere that at this point, the church was somewhere, this is talking about the universal church, not talking about just one church, but the church, the church of Jesus Christ continued to multiply. I read somewhere that at this point, there was about 100 churches now, certainly not all of them had a building. They were probably mostly, if not all, were house churches. But a hundred churches, at least at this point, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they, the people of God, placed themselves in the best position possible to be used by God for the expansion of the kingdom of Christ Jesus. So then the church continued to grow. And they were in this position to receive the blessings of God in Christ Jesus. Now, numbers don't always matter that much. To some degree, it should matter because it can communicate worshipers, saints, those who have been born again into the kingdom of heaven, right? We want to see vast numbers of those who are saved and have been saved. We want to see vast numbers of worshipers of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we need to be careful with numbers because numbers don't always communicate reality. I was discouraged last week. There was a gentleman who came, doesn't call to our church, he's sort of visiting, and did, meant well, meant very well. And he came, he, we had a very, very brief conversation. He had said something about a church is growing or whatever, and he looked, sort of like, took a look back at, our, uh, at sort of the rest of our congregation, and, you know, and he says, your church seems to be doing well also. So I don't fault the man for saying what he said, and, he, and essentially he didn't say anything wrong. And at the moment, it really bothered me. But until the next morning when I was alone with God and trying to pray, this conversation came back into my mind, and I was immediately discouraged because of his comment that there was a kind of a comparison made, right? And oftentimes, this is kind of a, this is our, 
what we tend to do. We tend to compare ourselves to others, and we tend to compare our situation with others. And so also in the church, you might tend to compare our church with other churches. This church is doing this. This church is doing that. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. This church is this big. This church is that small. This church is this small compared to that church, which, which is much bigger. But numbers don't always communicate reality. And I was reminded of that this week. Because certainly you can have a very large number, and there are many large churches in America where I would question how many of them would actually be saved because I know of the gospel that's preached there. A prosperity gospel. A Jesus is the repairman who's come to fix your brokenness, and that's all and nothing more. And it's not to say that there are saved, those who are saved in those churches, But numbers don't always communicate reality. Numbers don't always communicate thriving, aliveness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So also when there are small numbers, it does not communicate a reality. It does not mean that there isn't any life or vitality or energy or gospel strength in the church. There might be more aliveness and vigor and tenacity and energy and passion in a church of ten than a church of a thousand. What matters is truth and what we do on account of that truth. How does that truth compel us to live? That's what matters. And when we put ourselves in a position to be used by God to expansion of his kingdom... We don't worry about the numbers because the numbers are not really up to us. The Lord Jesus is the one who saves and adds to his kingdom. We just do our part and proclaim the gospel and we live out the gospel and we let God take care of the numbers. Now there's a reason why the church is growing as much as it is here in verse 31. And it's because of something that is happening at the same time. So I want to look at what's happening with Saul. There's three things, or actually four things, that we should take note of from the passage concerning Saul. Look at verse 20. So he was some days with his disciples at Damascus, and it says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. The, the one thing, or the first thing to notice, is that Saul is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. And he's doing this in the synagogue. In the synagogue. Jesus did similarly. But there he is in the synagogue. I mean, that's like me going to a mosque and getting up and saying, Jesus is the Son of God. That's like me going to the Jewish temple here in Portsmouth, getting up and saying, Jesus is the Son of God. I probably wouldn't recommend that to anybody, but this is what Paul does. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the temple, and he begins proclaiming, Jesus is the Son of God. There's three, at least three things that he's proclaiming there and saying that Jesus is the Son of God. 
and saying that he is the Son of God, he is saying that Jesus is the revealer of God. That the only way that you can know who God is is by looking at Jesus. The second thing that this declaration is saying is that Jesus is sent by God. Here is one who has come down from heaven, sent by God to reveal God. And the third thing that this declaration that he is the Son of God says is that Jesus is holy. If one is a perfect revealer of the God on high, and he is the one who has come and has been sent by this God, then the conclusion that one must draw is that this man must be holy. And taking these three things together, that he is the revealer of God, that he is sent by God, and that he is holy, the conclusion is that therefore... This man must be God. So immediately he proclaims the gospel in the synagogue. The second thing to notice is in verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but that plot became known and then it says in verse 25, his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall. Here is Saul converted, proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue, and he's making disciples. He's already fulfilling the great commission, going to all the world to make disciples of all nations. He's got disciples who are sitting under his teaching, who are hanging on his every word disciples who are learning to live like him as he strives to live after Christ. And then, thirdly, verse 28. So after he is now welcomed into the church, that's what it means in verse 28, so he went in and out among them after having at first been sort of apprehensive, being hesitant about receiving Paul into, sort of Saul into the church. I'm going to keep doing that, Saul, Paul. I'll just, just assume that I'm talking about the same person. But at, at first, he's not welcome to the church. And then in verse 28, so he went in and out, and he's finally received into the church. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. That's twice. That's twice there was a plot to kill Saul. And really, the third thing I'm getting at is he's actually taking the mantle from Stephen. He's picking up where Stephen left off, surprisingly, shockingly. The one who approved of Stephen's execution is now taking the mantle, is now picking up where Stephen left off and proclaiming the gospel, confounding the Jews, disputing with the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, about who Jesus Christ is and what he came into the world to do. And then the fourth thing to notice about, about Saul is the persecution. As I said, twice already, 
He's been the object of an assassination plot. And twice, he's had to be rescued. He's had to go elsewhere and run for his life. It doesn't make you unholy to run for your life. And this takes us to something what I... This is probably the most important point I'll make here in this sermon. He's already receiving persecution. And then what we see in verse 31 is that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. They were being built up and walking in the feet of the Lord and comforting the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. So Luke, as he narrates these events, seems to be telling us that the reason, the reason why the church is growing as much as she is, and the reason why she has so much peace during this time is because the chief persecutor of the church has been converted. That's one reason. That's the second reason, but that's at least one reason. So now the church is, a, is sort of in this place where they can continue to grow, where they're not sort of under fear that Saul could appear at any moment and take away the Christians and arrest them and bring them into prison and quite possibly bring them to execution. They're no longer living under that fear. So now they're rejoicing, they're celebrating, and they're taking that time that they have now with relative peace to continue to grow and devote themselves to the things that they ought to devote themselves to. But there's a second reason why the church is enjoying such peace. And that is because not only has the chief persecutor become converted, but it's also because the chief persecutor turned believer, turned Christian, turned saint, has now directed that persecution of the Jews towards himself. It's not that persecution has stopped. And I'm sure there was still some persecution towards the church, but it would seem, if you consider, if you continue to read the book of Acts, if you read of Paul's own testimony throughout his letters, it would seem that the intensity of persecution is focused towards Paul. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up. In case this helps you or not, in the original Greek, the, the there, the, the, the so the church there, this is therefore. So in other words, it's kind of saying, therefore the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Something happened prior to this that led to this sort of this, this result, and that is Saul himself became the object of persecution. In Colossians 1.24, it's a strange passage. Colossians 1.24 says, Now I, this is Paul writing, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Before, the Lord said to Ananias that I will show Saul how much he will suffer for my name. 
And here is Saul already suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And then we hear Paul's own words in Colossians 1.24, that he rejoices in his sufferings, and that even in himself he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. What does that even mean? What does it mean that he's filling up what is lacking? It's not that something is deficient in the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's not he's trying to make up something, make up for something that's lacking in the salvific work of Jesus Christ. He's not trying to do that. He's not trying to add to it. There is no adding to the perfect and complete salvation work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's not what he's saying. I don't know if you've ever heard of goodquestions.org. Sometimes it's a, I think it's a valuable resource. It's a Christian website. You go there and you have a question. Maybe it has an answer. And oftentimes, pretty good answers. But when it comes to this question, I was looking out of curiosity. But the answer to this question, I thought was dead wrong. They believe that what Paul means here is that what he's saying is that he is that in his sufferings, in his participating in the sufferings of Christ Jesus, that he is actually being more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's being more sanctified. He's becoming more holy. Certainly, yes, suffering has a way of sanctifying saints, but that has nothing to do with the passage. That is not what Saul or Paul is saying there. The New Living Translation Translations are helpful. They can be very helpful. But you've got to be careful with translation because sometimes they're not helpful. The Living Translation translates that passage in Colossians 1.24. It says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Very different wording there. Very different than saying lacking. What does Paul mean? I rejoice in my sufferings. Rejoice? Who says that? Rejoice in my sufferings? Have you ever heard anybody say they rejoice in their sufferings? Paul is just weird. It's a good weird. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's only two other passages that have these combination of words. 1 Corinthians 16, 17 I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, Paul says there. So he rejoices because these three individuals, why there's there's a church that desires to see Paul, but they can't all go and see Paul, but he rejoices as these three individuals who are representing the church have made up for the absence of the church. To receive these individuals, it's like receiving the church. Another one like it, Philippians 2.30, when Paul talks about anyways, a saint from the Philippian church delivers a care package to the Apostle Paul. Obviously, not gonna, the whole church is not going to go and deliver this package. Now, the thing is that this saint... Epaphroditus, I'm pretty sure that's his name. Epaphroditus even almost, it says, nearly loses his life in delivering this package, this care package from the church to the Apostle Paul. 
He says in Philippians 2.30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking here on the part of the church? They had the package there. We want to send this to Paul. We want to encourage him. We want to let him know that we're thinking about him, that we're praying for him. We think these, these words of encouragement might encourage him. But it's not going to get anywhere if it stays where it is. It's got to get to him. Right? And so that's what's lacking. What's lacking is the fact that this gift remains what it is, where it is, without being delivered. And so here's Epaphroditus who takes the package, nearly dies in his travel to bring this to the Apostle Paul on behalf of the church so that Paul may be encouraged. And so in that sense, Epaphroditus is completing what was lacking in the church's desire to encourage the Apostle Paul. So taking passages like these, I think, helps us to illumine what is happening here in Colossians 1.24 when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's a making up for something. And what he's trying to communicate, what he's trying to get across is that his personal sufferings on account of the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to communicate to the saints that Christ died for you, that Christ cares for his church. He says that he's received 39 lashes of the whip. Could you imagine seeing that back? The scars, I mean, just the disfigurement of what his back must have looked like from 39 lashes. And the Apostle Paul would say that each and every single lashing of the whip is intended to remind you that Christ Jesus died for you. This is what he's making up for. Because Jesus Christ is not here physically to meet with his people. We do not see him right now face to face. I don't see him there in the congregation sitting and watching. If he was, I'd be a very nervous wreck. But... The sufferings of the people of God on account of the gospel is intended to communicate in some way the physical manifestation of Jesus. It's intended to remind the people of God that Jesus is still with them. That's what he's making up for. What's lacking in the physical presence of Christ Jesus is being made up by Paul's suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why the church at this point is, is, has so much peace. Because Paul had been set apart for this ministry, for this purpose. That he himself, in his body, would bear the marks of Christ Jesus. It's very similar to when Philip would not believe that Jesus rose again from the dead until he saw Jesus face to face. And Jesus says to him, look at the marks on my hands. Look at the piercing in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And then he believes. He says, my Lord and my God. So Paul is saying, don't disbelieve. The Lord has not abandoned you. My very marks that I bear on my body are intended to prove to you 
that Jesus Christ is still with his people. And so the church enjoyed peace, and they capitalized on that peace in order to continue to grow. And so very quickly, by way of application, we must lean heavily into the peaceful seasons as one means by which God helps his church to continue to grow. Yes, the church can continue to grow through times of suffering, but the Lord also allows and permits and even brings about seasons of peace so that the church can devote herself that much more towards kingdom purposes. Proverbs 6.6, 6, I love the Proverbs. Wise sayings, and they come from different unexpected ways. Proverbs 6.6, 6. here's a word of wisdom. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. Nobody uses the word sluggard anymore. It's a good word. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Proverbs 30, 25, the ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The foolishness of the sluggard is that instead of working to provide for himself, when he should, he will be destitute later on. Instead of working diligently when things are plentiful and storing up more for the seasons of famine, he does not work, and then he has nothing to care for himself in the seasons of famine. The Lord takes his saints and the church as well through various different seasons. Sometimes it might seem like a season of famine. Sometimes it might seem like a season of summer. There's a season for harvesting. There's a season for working. But what helps us through those seasons of famine, what helps us through those seasons of suffering, and how, is how diligently we work through the seasons of summer. It's how diligently we work when things are plentiful, when things are pretty peaceful, where things in life are pretty manageable. Working diligently in those seasons, we then store up food for ourselves to draw from when we experience those seasons of famine and those seasons of suffering. The passage, this proverb from a Christian lens, calls for, an indu- it calls for industrious Christians to be wise and press into those seasons of stability and peace so that when the rough seasons come, they have a harvest to draw from. But we must also be careful in seasons of peace because seasons of peace have a way of turning Christians into sluggards. Christians do not only run, or run the risk of becoming lost through the seasons of suffering, they also run the risk of becoming lost through seasons of plenty, through seasons of ease as well. Because in seasons of ease, we have a tendency to become much more comfortable. Everything is fine. Everything is good. Everything is stable. Everything is provided for. I have all my needs met. In fact, it might even drive you to be much more comfortable in the pursuit of more ease, and more comfortability. 
and then you find yourself being coming too attached to the world and in love with worldliness. But the good news is that Paul has a secret. It's a secret for how to, how to not get lost in seasons of famine and seasons of prosperity and ease. Philippians chapter 4. I'm coming, coming to a conclusion. Philippians 4. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of facing abundance and facing need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret to not becoming lost in seasons of ease and stability and seasons of suffering and famine is contentment. Contentment is knowing how to be dependent upon the Lord and independent from the world. It is pressing into being satisfied in Christ Jesus. The person in a season of ease and plenty needs to be satisfied in Christ Jesus just as much, if not more so, than the person who's in a season of suffering and famine. Both need that contentment that comes from being fully satisfied in Christ Jesus, knowing that in Christ you have a Savior, you have salvation, have eternal life, you have the blessings that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have the family, the household of faith. It is with these things that we ultimately should be content. And that is the secret to knowing how to place abundance and need. But when we do have seasons of ease and plenty. And I would say that the Lord has blessed us. We have not needed anything in the life of the church. Just a week ago, we celebrated the fact that the Lord has provided for us with an abundance so that we are able to then give off to other ministries and other people for their work in ministry. But one thing to consider when you are in a season of plenty, in a season of ease, is that you also draw from the, you, you work and you become an industrious Christian also for the sake of others. Continuing in this illustration that Solomon has introduced for us with the ant, an ant actually has two stomachs and they fill up both so that when the food runs out, they actually have a second stomach to draw from, and they are also able to draw out to be able to provide for others. One of the reasons why 
you don't stop being an industrious Christian, even in seasons of plenty and seasons of ease, is because you want to be able to draw enough food to be able to encourage those who are in a season of famine and suffering. Because if you yourself are not being built up, if you yourself are not pressing into the kingdom, if you yourself are not tapping into the means that we provide, even as a church, not only just Sunday morning gathering, but the women's book studies and Bible studies, the Sunday school, the praying at least once a month that we do. For some of you men, you know that there are some men who gather at least twice a month for prayer, for accountability. Right? You might do well considering being a part of one of those groups. So we have all these things happening so that we can continue to draw from the well of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even if you should be filled up, it's never wrong to continue to fill up so that you can have something to share and give to those who are in need because of the season of famine and distress and suffering that they find themselves in. And so, let us press into the season that the Lord has called us to. Let us press into the means of grace. Let us press into the, the, the ways in which that we as a church have provided in order, to prov- in order to make available resources for the people of God to continue to draw food from, like some of the things that I mentioned. Because you never know when this season will end. There may come a time, and it probably will, where it will not be so easy for us to meet like we do, like we are this morning. But if we are developing these rhythms of grace, if we're developing these rhythms of tapping into and pressing into the kingdom and drawing from this well and storing up food, then should the time come when it is no longer this easy to come together, we have something to draw from and something to encourage others with. With that, let us go to the Lord and let us pray. Father, we look to Jesus, the one who gave everything to those who had nothing. Lord, you saw us in our need. And though there is nothing that we did or could have done to deserve your favor, you came down to us. And you died on the cross so that in Christ Jesus we may have everything. And that everything does not mean money. That everything does not mean clothes. That everything does not mean food or the right house or the right vehicle. It does not even mean health. But that everything means every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus that comes through our adoption, that comes through our being reconciled with you through Jesus. That everything includes a peace that surpasses all understanding. That everything includes a contentment that comes from being satisfied in Christ Jesus. Lord, 
Would you help us by your spirit to press into these seasons of ease by pursuing your kingdom wholeheartedly and even vigorously. Let us seek out your word so that we may be nourished and strengthened and so that we may have something to share with other brothers and sisters in need. We we not, not only want to feed ourselves and encourage ourselves, but we want to also encourage others. Use us to that end. And when we do these things, when we devote ourselves to the things that the first church devoted herself to, we put ourselves in the best position possible to be used by you for your glorious purposes and for the expansion of your kingdom. It is a privilege to be workers for your kingdom. Help us as workers of your kingdom who are driven by the truth that Christ Jesus died for sinners. Lord, and continue to grow your church. Multiply the number of believers. Save the lost. Give your church boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grow us in love and unity and fellowship and knowledge of your precious word. Grow us in the fruits of the Spirit. For your glorious name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.